If you would, please take your Bibles out and turn them over to John's Gospel this morning. As you know, we normally take a break from our normal exposition on Communion Sundays, and last September, I started doing a series on what I called iconic passages from the Bible. And by iconic passages from the Bible on communions, what I meant by that was it's these passages of Scripture that we hear so much and have heard so many times that it becomes easy for them to just become rote and we lose the majesty of them. And so we've looked at passages like Matthew 11, come to me who are weary and heavy laden. We've looked at the 23rd Psalm. We've looked at the parable of the prodigal son. We've looked at Isaiah 43. And this morning, we're going to look at probably one of the most iconic passages ever, and that's John 3.16. So we're going to be looking at John 3, and this psalm, or this uh, passage rather, these verses, they are so rich and deep and just dripping with gospel love and truth that it does well for us to come back to them again and again. And I'm sure many of you sitting in this room can probably just spout John 3.16 right off. You can say it right off the top of your head. You don't even need to look at your Bibles to say it. And yet, I think the challenge is to come back around to those that we know so well and to be reminded of why we memorized them in the first place. What was it about these passages of Scripture that reached out and grabbed a hold of us in the first place that says, this one is worth remembering. Of course, we could say that about any verse. Well, there are some verses in the Bible that are are pretty graphic, so maybe uh, those aren't as fun to memorize as this one. But this one is one of those that we should have on recall, but we should never lose sight of how rich and beautiful it is, because it's easy too. It's easy for us to forget why. When I was a new believer, and Richard is not lying, that testimony of me giving my testimony, oh, about circa 1999 is one of the funniest things I've seen in a while because my Alabama accent is thick. And, I mean, I said make phrases, I wasn't about all that. And that's how it sounds. I'm not even joking. That is, uh, that's a direct quote. And one, and one phrase I said, I was living for the devil, and maybe a little bit more countrified than that. But one of the first passages of Scripture I had, one of the first things I had to do when I came to Teen Challenge is read John's Gospel, and I was immediately in love with John's Gospel. I love John's Gospel so much that in seminary, I took a class just on this, and it was a fantastic class. Well, this and John's three letters. But one of the things that I remember learning that I had heard as a child is, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But when I became confronted with the truth of what is herein stated, this is life-changing. And this is not just about us being able to spout a verse. This is about remembering something that is deeply and fundamentally true that shapes how we think of God, how we understand Christ, how we understand and communicate the gospel, how we live our lives, and what we, and how we allow this love of God to affect how we love other people. So this is a powerful verse. And without further delay, I want us to get to this. I'm going to read this whole paragraph here that's before us, and I'm going to touch on most of it. But my primary focus this morning is on John 3.16, and it's preparing us 
for the Lord's Supper. So follow along with me in your Bibles. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God. So, in the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Please now pray with me. Father, thank You for this Word, its power, its majesty, its depth, its richness, its beauty. Oh, Father, please let all familiarity at this point slide away And help us to be as children coming to the table for the first time to drink deeply and eat our fill on this generous, gracious, beautiful text. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So when we're we're looking at this, what is central to this paragraph? What's central to that verse? Well, (laughs) we don't need a seminary degree to, to see. It's the love of God. What is central to this whole paragraph is the love of God. Now, We've also got some statements on condemnation and judgment and doing works that are good and works that are evil, but we need to understand what's driving everything from 16 through 21, and this is kind of taken up already from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. He's, he's, He's already had this conversation with Nicodemus, and so what's driving this whole paragraph that we're looking at here is he's just talked about a new birth. But now he's talking about what makes that new birth possible. How does that new birth even happen? Well, it happens. That that new birth that he had spoken to Nicodemus about is a fruit of the love of God. That new birth, the possibility of new birth, is because of God's great love. And so he's feeding into this. And so what what he's doing here in 16 through 21, he's given us the simple idea. It's the main idea I want for us to see today. That the love of God in Christ, it redeems, it reveals, and it renew or it revives. It redeems, it reveals, and it revives. It redeems us, it makes us alive again, and it reveals things about us and our relationship with God. And I want you to, we need to see right off the bat, as John is so fond of doing, when he's speaking about love in its primary form, it's all about how God loves us and not our love for God. Now, God's love for us should breathe love for God in us, but the thing that shapes us most is not how we love God, but how God loves us. And that's supposed to be the determining factor in how we live our lives and how we go about in repentance and how we go about in community and how we go about in in teaching and thinking through the Word. The primary focus then becomes God's love for us and what that means for us as human beings. And so that's where we are. And so when we're looking at this passage, we need to understand that it is the depth of God's love that is on display here. It is the depth of God's love that is on display. 
And so the purpose of love, especially coming from God, is genuinely rescue. The, the purpose of God's love, yes, He, is, he wants to have a relationship with us, but the, the primary purpose of God's love is to rescue us from a sin-cursed world and bring us into fellowship with Himself. That is the primary purpose. So God's love is given that we might know true love, that we might be reshaped by that love, and that we might live in relationship with God who is love. Now, we live in a world that has cheapened that word. They, you know, people will use that word about any number of things, right? I love this candy bar. I love these shoes. I love this. I love that outfit on you. I love our house. Oh, I love you. You're a, you're a, you're a good friend to me. And, and so often we forget how rich that word actually is. We use it, and sometimes flippantly so, but this is not a flippant use of the word love here. When God, for, for God loved the world, and then John expounds on how do, how do we know that God loved the world? Well, he, then he tells us. So when we think about this, we're talking about the purpose of God's love being genuine rescue. But what do we need to be rescued from? Yeah, we could, we could say the obvious things, uh, the, the world, the sin of the world. But you know who your primary enemy is? I mean, obviously, under the rubric of Satan, the world, but your flesh, who is it that we often need to be rescued from? It's ourselves and our own sinful desires, our own willingness to deviate from the pathway of love to satisfy some fleshly desire, our own willingness to live by the flesh instead of walking in the Spirit. And so one of the things that God's love is, it is a disciplinary arm that comes back around to us again and again to get us back into the path, or back onto, I should say, the pathway that we need to be on which is on the pathway of love for God and love for His people. So when we look at verse 16, what is on display is God's love. That's clear. But when we're looking at the purpose of verse 16, what it's doing is it's describing for us the essence and scope of God's love. It's describing for us the essence and scope of God's love. And I'm going to break this down. You've heard me make allusions to this before, but today we're going to look at this uh, in depth for the next few minutes. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, historically, people have understood this verse to read as God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Now, that sounds really great and, and fine. That's not exactly what John is intending to say here. So, John is not talking about how much God loves, God is talking about whom God loves and how it's expressed. So literally, if we were translating this from the Greek to English, for in this way God loved the world, thus He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John is setting the course for how God loves the world. It is through sacrifice. So we're being shown how God shows love to the world, and we're going to look at what He means by the world here in just a moment. But right now we're going to focus on the, this love, that He loves in this way. He's not talking about who God loves so much as He's talking about how God loves. God loves in this way. And so when we think about the body and the blood that are represented in the table before us, we are getting an image, a picture of the love of God, that how, how did He love? He sent His Son 
For God loved the world in this way. He didn't just send His Son. He gave His Son. And there are lots of sacrificial implications in that word. The Son wasn't taken from God. He wasn't stolen from God. He didn't drift away from God. He wasn't lost to the Father. The Son was given. How did God love the world? He gave His Son. Now, beloved, that needs to hit us hard because we get in our, the rhythms of life and we forget the true beauty of that right there. Maybe we feel alone. Maybe we've been abandoned. Maybe we're going through a particularly hard time and we do feel isolated. I'm not being trite here. Those are painful. Those are hard circumstances. And I have had many a dark night of the soul. But I'm telling you, this is true, and this needs to be a wave and wash of comfort to our souls. How much did God love the world? He gave His Son. He gave His Son. When it speaks of His love, I'm not going to get too technical here, but it's written in such a way that it's definitized. That is a definite love. God's love is an accomplished fact. Now, God is, or John is speaking about the incarnation here, something he spent great detail talking about in John 1, verses 1 to 18. He's elaborating here that God's love is an accomplished reality. It is a settled fact. It is not merely possible, this love. God's love is a sealed love, and it's proven. That love is proven in the incarnation itself, in the giving of the Son, which the incarnation, which led to the crucifixion, which led to the resurrection, which led to the ascension, which will lead to the eventual return and us being caught up in glory. It is a golden chain, a beautiful golden chain linked together, and the binder to it all is the love of God. The love of God for the world. When you see that word world there, cosmos, so you know where we get words like cosmology from. It comes right from the Greek cosmos. John is very fond of that word, uses it many times. Some people like to quibble over how it's intended here. Is he just talking about that God loved his creation, so he sent his son into it? That God loved everything that he had made, and so he sent his son into the world? That's not a bad idea. That's not what John has in view here. Usually when John uses that word, he's talking about humanity. And when we're looking at it here, we need to understand who is humanity laid bare before God, broken and defiled and the image marred by sin. So who did God, for God so loved who? Broken humanity. How much did He love broken humanity? He gave His Son. He gave His Son so that we who were broken and lost and dirty and defiled and ugly could be found, cleaned, restored, made beautiful. Beloved, how many of you would make that kind of sacrifice for your best friend? I would be very loath to do that. Now think about doing it for someone whom you would consider your worst enemy, someone who reviled you, hated you, mocked you, scoffed. 
We sang about scoffing and man of sorrows. I love that song. It balances celebration and lament. As you get the lament, it's balanced by hallelujah, what a savior. But this is the love that God has. He loved, so he gave. We're looking at the pattern of God again and again and again and again. When God loves, he gives. God loved broken humanity. He gave his son. His love, we could say, it compels him to give. And I love that John uses a word here. The ESV and most translations do translate it. He gave his only son. Not quite the, the full meaning of that word. That's a fine translation. It gets that to the, the heart of what John is trying to say. But we're, we shouldn't think of as if Jesus is the only one so much as Jesus is quite unique. There's not another son in God's family like him. So his uniqueness. So God didn't, God sees broken humanity. He decides to give and he gives a unique, his unique son, his the one of a kind God-man. We are sons and daughters of God in Christ. We're not sons and daughters in the same way that Jesus was. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And he is the one who came. He is the one who was given. He is the one who was laid down as the sacrifice, the fitting sacrifice. He bore our shame. He took God's wrath. He stood condemned in our place because he was the only one who could do it. That is the love of God expressed. That is the hope of God brought home to a weary world. And so when we think about the incarnation, we're looking at the symbol of it here in front of us, the, the bread representing the body and the cup representing the blood. We're looking, what we are looking at is the fullest expression of God's love. The fullest expression that Jesus came and His body was given, His blood was shed, that we might have fellowship with God, that we might be made clean, that we might be made right, that we might be made whole. That is the beauty of John 3.16. You couldn't ask for something more rich, more deep, more wonderful, more beautiful than that. There is so much there to take out and just gaze and wonder. For God's loved the world in this way. How, John? He gave His only Son. To what end? What was the grand purpose? And John answers that. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. How do we participate in this wonderful love gift of God? How do we participate in it? By means of faith and trust. By means of faith and trust. And I love the way he writes it here, that the one believing, literally, that the one believing in him, that is a present participle in Greek, not that you care about that, but in Greek what that means is it's a continuous action. He is talking about not a one-time faith where, hey, when I was seven, I walked the aisle, I, I had faith in God, and so now I'm good with the man upstairs, which I hate that phrase, by the way. If you really want to irritate me, use it. Wow, that one didn't land. <laughs> Tough crowd. Um, faith, 
believing is not. John doesn't have in this, I wrote my name in a Bible one time and said I had faith in Jesus. This believing is a constant, continual belief. It is a walking in trust in the Lord. It is a living by faith and not by sight. It is walking in the pathway of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be believing. And what he says here, the one and whoever is believing literally into him. Well, why does he do that? Well, I promise this is not just a grammar lesson this morning. Because prepositions are spatial. Usually they are they are trying to identify a, a spatial movement or something that's static in a space. When we go, when we are believing into him, whoever is believing into him, as we're moving from a state of unbelief into believing, not just an idea, not just a thesis, not just a philosophy, but a person. We're believing into a person. We're living by faith in a person, not just eight pillars of things to do that help us be better people. No, this is a living, real faith because it's in a real and living person. That we're moving into him. So what does this mean then? If God loves the world and he gave his son and that those believing in him don't perish but have eternal life, what it does is it forces a change in, our, in us. It forces us to transform by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, I can't stay in a state of unbelief and enjoy the love of God expressed in eternal life. I have to be moved from a state of unbelief into belief, and then I have to stay there. I have to live in that space so that the Holy Spirit guides us in all truth. John will later say in this gospel, reminding us that there is a full-orbed life and mission that we live out, and it's beautiful. And so when we think of where does faith lead us, where does this believing take us? It takes us away from perishment, away from perishing, and away from destruction into eternal life. And so faith leads to this life. And so what does lack of faith mean? The one not believing perishes. They walk in destruction. And he elaborates on that with the next few verses. So when we think about what is it, how do we live out, how do we live under the umbrella of God's love on a journey of eternal life? It begins with recognizing who God is and staying in a state of belief that that is true. Why do we fight for the truth so much as Christians? Because it matters. It matters what we believe in. It matters what we hold to. It matters what person we put our trust in. It matters. That's why all roads don't lead to the same place. That's why gospel preaching, gospel-rich, word-centered preaching is so valuable because it keeps us grounded in the place where we fully embrace and understand God's love to the best that we can, and we live it out. So that's why fighting for truth is not just winning arguments. It's not just making, uh, persuading people that they're wrong and you're right. It's about living our life under the umbrella of God's love and walking in that. It's valuable. It's important. And so the only hope of eternal life is the love of Christ by means of, or the love of the Father by means of Christ in a state of believing that there is no other way. In John's gospel, Jesus will later say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man comes to the Father except through me. The rest of these verses, I'm going to just touch on them briefly because what they're doing is they're there as, they're each, each of them are important, but they're there as support pillars for this main, this main thesis. John 16, John 3.16, and this particular paragraph be the main thesis, and the rest of it is the support pillars for this idea of what God's love is and isn't and what it accomplishes and what those who reject it end up embracing. That's essentially what it does. So, the purpose of the Son here, for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So, what is Jesus' mission in the incarnation? Salvation. He came as a Savior. This is not to say that Jesus will never judge. What it's giving us is His mission statement for the first advent, for the first, His first coming. Now, at His second coming, He will be coming as judge. In this first coming, he comes as the God-man who is to save people from their sins. That's exactly what the angel tells Joseph. And you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That defines for us what is the purpose of Jesus in the first coming. So he will save. The incarnation is about salvation. And so if faith is the pathway to life, as we've already seen, and unbelief is judged. That's exactly, we've we've already seen that in 3.16, but that's what 17 is kind of beginning to undergird. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, in verse 18, whoever does not believe in Him or has not believed in Him has been condemned already. John is using the verbs, particular tenses, to communicate a perpetual reality. So those who live in unbelief, they already stand condemned. They already stand under the judgment of God. Why? It's not even necessarily for what they're doing, although if they're doing wicked deeds, those also are condemned. It's because of the state of their mind and heart. Their heart has not been captured by Christ. And so those whose hearts are not captured by Christ, by the love of God, they stand condemned already. That's why in gospel presentation, we're not trying to replicate ourselves and make people think just like us. No, we're aiming for the heart. We're going for the heart of people with truth that the Spirit might do His work there first. So what begins in the heart works its way out. And so, unbelief is judged, has been, or it has, or it stands condemned already. And so, this lack of faith, what what does unbelief show? It shows that people stand under the judgment already. Just very similar to in Romans 1, when Paul begins talking about the world's reversing God's sexual ethic, and we see it broken in a culture around us, the way Paul mentions it there is he mentions that that broken sexual ethic is a symptom, not a root, that those people show themselves already condemned by God because they have turned God's truth on its head. Those who don't believe, John tells us, have rejected God's truth and stand under judgment already. That is why the preaching of the gospel becomes primary in our culture and in any culture. And this judgment, and this is the judgment, John continues on in verse 19. The light has come into the world, 
and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are, were evil. Very simple. Light exposes. We've already been introduced to this uh, notion in John chapter 1 and the prologue. What does the light do? It reveals. The light shines in the darkness, John says in chapter 1, but the darkness has not overcome it. Why does the light shine in the darkness? The light is meant to expose. It's meant to give life. It's, it's meant to expose evil and falsehood. What is the incarnation? What is it that repre- is re- represented before us this morning? It is light shining into a dark world to bring, to rescue men, to expose evil for what it is and sin for what it is and bring hope to mankind. But you see, evil wants to stay shrouded. Why do we have secret sins? Why do we have secret sins? Why do we keep them hidden? We don't want them exposed to the light because it hurts. It's painful. Either we want to protect it or either we're ashamed or some combination of those. That's why it's hard to be, for, for humans in general, to walk in the light and be transparent because we, we become, we have to come face to face with the dark corners and crevices of our minds and hearts. But beloved, as painful as it is, and it's painful, it's not any less painful for me than it is for you, that is how we walk in the light. We allow the light to shine in those places that we would love to stay hidden. But when we bring the light there and God's truth reigns, there is freedom and joy and hope. But that's why evil is kind of like a roach. Turn on those lights and they scurry, and they're really hard to catch. They're really good at finding dark spaces and hiding. So if you think roaches are gross, maybe start thinking of your sin that way, and that'll be a little, a little device to help you. It's like a roach, and it wants to keep crawling and keep going and keep hiding. And roaches are gross, right? I don't like them. We should kill roaches <laughs> and our sin. See, there's, there's a moral lesson there. John brings this around. I mean, he makes a very practical, purposeful statement. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, right? Pretty, pretty, pretty plain. And does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That's what we were just talking about. He ends it, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. Whoever does what is true not just knows what is true, not just believes what is true, those are important, but who does what is true, he comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know what I love about John? He's not even going to let us take credit for the works that we do. The works that we do, the truth that we live are done in God. In other words, God is the objective reality that compels us and gives us power to do those things. It's beautiful. It's beautiful because what it's doing is reminding us, for God loved you when you were broken, and when you were broken and couldn't do it, God rescued you by by the love of Christ, and He set you in Christ in a perpetual state of believing, and as you believe, you live, and as you live, you grow, and the growth and the life that you have all come from God so that the works that we do that are true are in God. We're doing them in God, in His name, by His power, and for His glory. And so now, even our very lives are the fruit of, what, of God's love. 
And so when we think about this, as we prepare to take the supper this morning, and I'll leave us with this final thought, that the love of God is meant to move us from death to life. That's what it does. It moves us from death to life. As we think about the body and the blood this morning, we are being reminded that Jesus came and died to move us from death to life so that now as He lives, we live with Him, are identified with Him, and have our lives in Him. God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son, that the one believing in Him should never perish but have everlasting life. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this Word this morning. It's so rich and beautiful and dripping with grace and love and truth and all the things that we need to live our lives before You. Help us to do that. Help this to wash over us afresh every day, I pray. Help us to deepen our roots in You and in this passage and in other passages like it that remind us of just how much You love us. Thank You for Jesus. And be with us now as in a few moments we prepare to take the supper. As through Christ we pray. Amen.